And now for the scripture reading, we have Acts 17, 1 through 9. Okay, it says, When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, (laughs) where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on the three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But the other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown in turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. All right. Thank you very much. Everybody all right? Sometimes we have the vibe of a library. Just saying. Do me a favor. Uh, stand with me. Um, I wasn't planning on doing this, but uh, sometimes we got to wake up. I want to do the Shema with you guys. Um, and you know what? Until we hit like a, some kind of capacity in here where everyone's sort of comfortable talking, I know everyone to everyone else is a zombie with a deadly virus. But I think we can learn to be, I want, the commu- I, want, I want the vibe of not a library, more of like a community center. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like it's good to see you kind of vibe, kind of thing. So do me a favor. Let's, let's do this together. So repeat after me with the first part. Shema Yisrael. That sucked. All right, let's try again. Come on. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Elohenu. Adonai Echad. Okay, so do this with me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. All right, thank you. You can be seated. See if I can get back to where we were. Okay, so uh, this is our passage today. We've already done a couple of weeks in Acts 17. We're going through the book of Acts. Uh, This is what we do if you're new here. Um, We tend to pick a book of the Bible and we go through it very slowly, verse by verse, and then uh, random weeks we'll just jump to other topics, but by and large, we have a track we're working through. We did Matthew, um, and we're doing Acts, and next we're going to do Romans, and I'm trying to make this take as long as it can because I want to do Romans in person because it's that kind of book. Um, and if we need to, we'll do some other stuff between Acts and Romans to, to hold off so we can do it together. Um, so, also, I want to encourage you guys, um, stay healthy, keep doing the right thing, wear your mask, and I encourage you to get vaccinated. Yes, I did. Oh, no. I encourage you, like... Get vaccinated so we can, we can protect those around us. It's, uh, I, I don't think there's anything more Christ-like than taking a little bit upon yourself uh, so that others can, can live and so that we can uh, work our way back uh, to where we need to be. I'm looking forward to the day when we're all sort of just gathered together like normal uh, again. And uh, I think we've learned a lot about ourselves and about each other, and I'm ready for whatever God has next for us. So I'm going to I'm going to open us up in a word of prayer, and then we're going to jump into this. We're going to talk about the accusations against Jason here and the other apostles. Let's see, what are we talking about today? Let's get a run, quick, run through real quick. We're talking about the accusation that, uh, that they're serving another king, what that means in the first century. We're talking about 
the period from Paul to Constantine, what happened uh, in that period, and then what happened afterwards to shift and change the whole thing. So I'm going to pray, and then let's jump into it, and uh, let's, let's study this together, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for every single person that you have brought into this room. I pray that we would be, um, that we would be good listeners to your spirit that we would understand that you are present here, that you are teaching us, that you have brought exactly who you want to bring together into this space, um, and that you will fill our church community with exactly who needs to be here, um, exactly the right people to, pay, pay, to have us pay attention to the right issues, exactly the right people to help us walk through difficult conversations. I pray that we would be a community of people that view each, other's, uh, that, that view each other in evenness and equality, um, that we would be guided by your spirit, that you would help us to discern the path forward in each and every situation. Help us to make the next right step that we need to make. And help us, more than anything, to be Christ-like people. Help us to every day become more and more Christoform in our lives. Help our lives to look like you. Um, not just live lives that talk about God, but live lives that, that express who God is by living like Jesus. Uh, and let that be sort of how we are seen. Um, may they be our ultimate goal, Christ-likeness. In your name, amen. Okay, so there are three accusations against Jason and the apostles here. We've already seen a bunch of these. And what I want you to see is um, the accusations that come up against the apostles over and over and over are the accusations that came up against Jesus. They're the same things because Luke and Acts is part one and part two. The things that Jesus experienced and went through, the apostles must then experience. The early church must experience and go through because there's this moment where, at, where Jesus sort of passes the torch to his people and says, it has been God in this body, in this world, and now you are the body of Christ, here together to continue on the work of Christ. Um, and so, there are three accusations that are made. The first one is this. They say, these outsiders have caused trouble all over the world, and that's in verse 6. And this, this, uh, this word here that they use for like this, there's causing trouble, so uh, if you read different... Um, sort of uh, translations of the text. Some of them are, are literally going to translate it as these people are turning the world upside down. Um, that's probably, I think this is one of the few instances where the ESV might have like a better translation here. Uh, it says, these outsiders have caused trouble all over the world. Anastasio, on, I'm sorry, anastato is that word. It means upheaval, up, upending, turning upside down. He says, they're taking everything that we understand and they're flipping it upside down. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. The second accusation is very simple. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, although Luke doesn't tell us which decrees those are. There's apparently some things that they are not doing, that they are told to do, and that they refuse to do. Um, and the reason why is because of the third accusation, uh, because they are declaring another king. It's also in verse 7. This king is Jesus. Um, uh, I would argue that all of these accusations stem from the third one, the reason they are turning the world upside down is because Jesus is their king and they view the world differently. The reason they are um, not obeying the decrees of Caesar is because Caesar is not their king. Jesus is their king. He is their only king. He is the one that they follow. They understand themselves not as Roman Christians. They understand themselves as Christians living in Rome. Um, but they are, in fact, another nation, another people. So, that accusation that they are another people comes from the fact that they serve another king. That is the third accusation here. They have another king. If you have another king, you are a different people. Now, the third accusation here, this another king thing, people don't realize how much weight this has. This isn't just a, a description like they have another king. This is uh, an accusation 
that is one of the most dangerous accusations that you can receive in the ancient Roman world. Uh, just a century earlier, I know it seems like a long time, but it really wasn't in the span of like a city. A uh, hundred years earlier, this specific city that they are in was the site of a brutal civil war, really between four sort of dictators at the time. You have, you have Brutus and Cassius. This is after the death of... Um, after the death of Caesar, Brutus and Cassius rise up and, it was, and, and, and fought against um, Antony and Octavian to replace the Caesar. And these two guys wage a civil war against each other for the throne. Um, and of course, as we all know, uh, Antony and Octavian won. Uh, and then they turned on each other and fought each other. Um, these accusations of having another king... These are regular accusations that would be leveled against all kinds of people who refuse to recognize their emperor, their leader, as king. And every time this would happen, it would lead to another civil war. So the Roman authorities are very wary of hearing any kind of accusation about someone having another king. Um, In AD 50, um, there were three men claiming to be king of Rome. In, uh, In AD 69, for almost a full year, there were four men claiming to be the king. Um... This is not even unique in actually in, in history. If you read church history, at one point there were three different people claiming to be Pope. Like, there is always a desire from different people to rise up and be king and a desire for their followers to make them king. This is where civil wars tend to come from. And this causes thousands, hundreds of thousands of people usually to die. So, of course, when these Christians are coming in declaring that Jesus is king, it gets very, very dicey very, very fast. You don't, it's, it's okay, I don't mind a baby's cry, totally cool, good, good to see you, Brian, love your baby, um, and, uh, and so this happens uh, all the time, and they're really afraid of it, they're really worried about it, um, and just so you can see, like, I want you to see some of the linguistic tricks that, are, that, are, that Luke pulls as well, the first half of the book of Luke is fascinating because Jesus is constantly called the king of the Jews, because remember, the, uh, the great commission goes to the Jews first, and then to the Gentiles, and so at the very beginning, Jesus is, and all through the book of, of Luke as well, king of the Jews. That's the sign above his head when he's dying, when he's hanging on the cross. King of the Jews. After we get um, into chapter 13 with the evangelization of the Gentiles, and they start coming into the church, he, oops, I skipped, I had that already. Uh, he becomes the king of everyone. Um, it's not just the Jews anymore that have their king. Now there is a whole other thing. And remember, when it was, we were talking about the king of the Jews, Herod was already the king of the Jews. And Herod died in a terrible fashion by standing up and being arrogant and declaring himself king of the Jews um, while attempting to stomp out Christianity. Um, And so Acts, in these two parts, like the theme of Acts is this is how Jesus becomes king of the world. It starts with the ascension. That is the great picture of Jesus rising to sit at the throne of the universe. It is not the ascension is not a story about Jesus flying into outer space. The ascension is not Jesus leaving. It's literally, the symbolism there is Jesus becoming king, sitting on the throne reigning, and he is now the only king that we recognize and follow. So, let's go back and talk about what happened after this. So, um, you have this time period from Paul to about the end of the third century, where these Christians viewed themselves as a sort of, 
surrogate government and a surrogate family, and they're living in this way. They're living in groups of people together in houses. Most of them are celibate, and they're committing to serving in the church. A few of them pair off and get married for the purpose of having children, but the most important thing was to be sort of celibate, living together in the church community and serving each other in this way so that they could be free to do the work of God, to bring in more and more people into the households. Uh, And as they live, um, their entire goal is to be the presence of Christ in the community. So from Paul to about the time of Constantine, which is the early 4th century, 325-ish, around the writing of the, of the Nicene Creed, um, the church at the very beginning, it's this small radical movement of people. Remember, when the book of Romans was written, there's maybe 150 Christians in the, book, in the city of Rome. There's not very many. And they're this radical group of people living in sort of communes, if you will, like living in groups together, um, being their own people, being specifically not Roman. But in the early 4th century, um, you know, I, people like to say they, have a, they had a belief system. It's, it's less of a belief system, the early Christianity, it's less of a belief system than a practice system. It was a way that they viewed the world and a way that they ordered their entire lives around it. They had daily practices that they would go through. But in the, in the early 4th century, there's this emperor that rises to power. His name is Constantine, and we've all sort of heard of Constantine. Um, and Constantine uh, is the first emperor of Rome to sort of recognize, and this is sort of like, there's several different ways that his history is told. Um, He's the first one to sort of recognize the power that Christianity has as a unifying force. And so Constantine wants to unify all of the Roman Empire under himself. And so he tells the story about about something that may or may not have happened. We're not really sure about him seeing sort of a cross in the sky and hearing a voice of God say, by this sign you shall conquer. So he's the first one to take the symbol of the cross, the symbol, honestly, of Christian pacifism and suffering um, under the boot of powerful people. And this Roman emperor puts it on their swords and on their shields and on their helmets and now charges into battle under the sign of the cross and conquers and so now sees Christianity and God as this way of gaining power. And so Constantine wants to unify Rome, but the problem is all over the Roman Empire, there are all these different gods that are worshipped. And so what has to happen is they all need to sort of worship the same God if you're really going to have unity. Um, and so this is what Constantine did, does. His wife is supposedly a Christian, and so he says, I'm, uh, and, and God has helped me on the battlefield, even though that's not, what, that's not what God does. It's not what Jesus shows us, reveals to us as God doing in the world. Um, but nevertheless, this is what Constantine says, and he succeeds in uniting sort of the world, the Roman world, under the banner of Christianity. But it's not really Christianity as we understand it. It is sort of this nominal Christianity. It's associated with power. Um, It's this unifying force that he uses to free people from their pagan gods. Now, Constantine is not the first person or the last person um, to wield religion and the teachings of Christ in this way. Oftentimes there are leaders who even today who believe that they can use Christianity to somehow sanctify and sanitize their society, that they believe that Christianity is a tool by which they can make their city um, sanctified and sanitized and better, more well-governed, more orderly, and they use Christianity as sort of a local polity kind of thing. Um, And oftentimes you will hear descriptions of the text that say things like, well, Luke was really writing this book of Acts to show that the Christian movement was, was merely 
uh, its, its intended purpose was to create good citizens. Like, they were merely encouraging everyone to be good citizens of, of the city in which they were, uh, and then this is what Jesus was too. And the people that tell you this are usually the people who are in charge, and they use Christianity to try to get you to fall in line and, and create some kind of order. But in reality, Christian, Christianity was never about actually being a good citizen of any country. It never was. It was specifically actually the opposite. It was recognizing a whole different nation and empire and kingdom exists and being a part of that no matter what happens to the empire in which you are living, but living as a follower of Jesus. Now, um, it was never about obedience to laws. Christianity was never about making the country in which they lived happier or even more successful. Lots and lots of Christians who followed Jesus died terrible, painful, horrific deaths while proclaiming that Jesus is king. It did not make them better citizens of Rome at all. Um, A lot of leaders of Christianity today are working in the name of God to make history sort of come out right. Like we use the Bible to make history work out right sometimes. Um, But to be clear, this is not actually the role of the church. This is what a lot of powerful people who need your help will claim the role of the church actually is, but it is not the role of the church. The church does not exist to guide history or to make America moral or obedient or great or even better. Um, It's not to bless the queen or any of that. The church does not exist to guide legislation. It doesn't exist to be on the side of the good guys when world wars break out. Every side will claim to be on the side of God and every side will use the name of God, in fact, in that war trying to kill the other people. Christianity is a weird thing, and it doesn't really fit with all of these purposes that we would like to use it for. That is not actually what it is intended to accomplish, and I don't even think that's what it can accomplish. The role of the church is really very, very simple. It is to be Christ-like. That is the role of the church. Jesus displayed to us what God is like in every way. And the book of Hebrews starts out, it says, Jesus was the full and complete picture of who God is. And then Jesus says, now, church, I have formed you so that that will be your role. And so our simple role is to be the presence of Jesus wherever we are and when we gather and to publicly sort of manifest the presence of Christ in the world. Um, but how? how? How does, like, What is the point of of manifesting Christ? What is the point of us being Christ-like in society? Like, what do we get out of all this? Sure, if that's our goal. Like, some people are saying it's our goal to, like, you can guide, like, legislation, history. Like, you can make huge changes. But, like, what is the point if we're all just trying to act like Christ? Well, the presence of Christ is literally how God changes the world. And we fail to realize this so often. If we focus on Christ-likeness and being the presence of Jesus in the darkest parts of our world, then God can use God's presence here in us to change the world and to mold it into God's own image. And how does God change the world? By multiplying his image there throughout the world, by creating and expanding the body of Christ to bring in more and more people who become Christ-like and thereby take part in a good culture in the midst of darkness a culture of light, what they call a city on a hill. It's a group of people doing something different. That is what the church is always supposed to be, which is why it is difficult um, to guide a church sort of by reason and by populace. And by the, well, here's, here's what most churches are doing and we should do this. Here's what society is doing and so we should do this. But the fact is, 
the only question we should be asking ourselves is, is this Christ-like or is it not? And if it is not, we don't do it. And if it is, then we do because our whole entire purpose here is not to accomplish some external thing. It is to be Christ-like in the world so that everyone can see exactly what God is like and be drawn in so that God's people can expand and so that everyone can be embraced in sort of this Garden of Eden which we have been given like we talked about last week. Um, By the way, I had so much fun last week. It was really wonderful. And my kids tried to take home a bunny, and I said no. And I'm a bad guy now, but that's okay. I know how things go. It would be my bunny three days in. Um, Okay, so usually when the church is most Christ-like, it will undoubtedly rub against local culture and authority, and this is what we see all the time. So let's go back to Constantine. So Constantine, the rise of Constantine, causes Christianity to move from a a practicing people, a people who come together to do the sacraments and to manifest the presence of God in the city of Rome or Philippi or Thessalonica or Colossae, wherever they are. And it was a practice-gathered community, a practice-centered. They gathered together to practice being Jesus. But with the rise of Constantine, what happens is Constantine takes Christianity, and he moves Christianity from a practicing community to a believing community. And in the year 325 or so, there is this council, this gathering of the ecumenical leaders of the church worldwide, empire-wide, and they come together to sort of solidify what they all agree upon, what makes us all collectively the church. And they write the Nicene Creed. And I love the Nicene Creed. It is our sort of doctrinal statement. If you, if you, like, it's, the, it's the document that Christians all over the world read, and they're like, yep, that's us. That's if you can quote the Nicene Creed without crossing your fingers, you probably are with us. Like, um, and this is what the Nicene Creed is. It describes two things. It describes the Trinitarian nature of God. It describes, um, it describes the, the um, I don't like to use the big words, but like the, the hypostatic union of, of Christ. It's, it's how Jesus is both God and human at the same time. These are the two things that Christians have always cared about most. Outside of these things, most ideas are like fair game. But like, when Christians are talking about what they believe, what makes you a heretic is disagreeing with the, with, with the creed. That's what it does. And it's very specific. But in this creed, it describes the church. As it says, we believe in this, we believe in that. And then it says, we believe in one holy and Catholic church. Catholic is the word for universal. We believe in whole, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. But the problem is, believing something is not doing something. And if something is holy, that is not a description. That is a verb. That is an action. It, is, it, means, it literally means different. I guess it is like sort of an adjective. But like, it's something that you do to become holy. Like you, you are supposed to be a holy people. And instead of believing the church is holy, the church should be holy. It is an action that we do, that we take. Um, it is, it is not a belief system. Christianity is a way of living and existing in the world that reveals the holiness, the outright differentness of our king and his kingdom. That is very, very different from a lot of descriptions you will hear of Christianity today, but that is the historical take on what Christianity is. A lot of people today will describe Christianity as it is believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins so that you can go to heaven when you die. But what you're really doing when you describe that is you're describing sort of maybe some of the repercussions of the gospel, That is not Christianity. That is maybe a repercussion of Christianity. But Christianity itself is the gathering of the people who practice the life and teachings and sacraments given to us by the early apostles. It is the practice of being the presence of Christ. It is not 
even really a belief system. It is a practicing system. It is less orthodoxy than it is orthopraxy. It is a way of being. You order your entire life around this thing. If I say, I believe in Christianity, that doesn't mean anything at all. To say, I believe in Christianity, that doesn't mean anything at all. Like, it's like saying, I believe in making sandwiches. Well, that doesn't feed you. Make yourself a sandwich, and then you've accomplished something. But say, I believe in driving my car. Your car's been in the garage for five years. Yes, but I believe in driving it. You're not a driver. Like, that's not what you are, because you don't drive the car. To believe in something doesn't really do anything. To, to take hold of it, to live it out, to order your life around it. This is what Christianity is. It is a practice. Um, Christianity is something that you do, not that you are or believe. You practice it by being the manifest presence of Christ. So I keep using this phrase, manifest presence. And this is something I want to open up and understand as well for you guys. There are two forms of presence when you read the Bible. Um, there, is, there is what is called, hold on, where is he? Let's see where we are at. Okay. There is what's called omnipresence. And uh, in theological terms, this is like omni means sort of everywhere, that God is everywhere present. There's other omnis, right? There's omnipotent, all-powerful. There's omniscient, all-knowing, and omnipresent. And these are historically the way people have described God based upon what we learned from Jesus. All-presence, the all-presence of God, like the omnipresence, this is something that we believe, that God is present anywhere and everywhere at all given times. No matter where you go, God is there. But that's not something you can practice. That's just something you believe and are aware of. The other kind of presence of God is called the manifest presence of God. The manifest presence uh, is different. It is the public and visible portrayal, revelation of God's presence. It is, it is something that Christians do. It is not something that God does. It is God's presence sort of in our hands, right? Like, God is responsible fully for God's omnipresence. I have nothing to do with that. I can affirm it or I can deny it. And it doesn't change anything that, that God is doing. The manifest presence of God is something that I do. It is something that you do. It's something that we do together. When I am in a situation where I decide, Father, I need you to help me be the presence of Jesus in this moment because I do not know what to do. Or I do know what to do and it is hard and everything in my body is telling me not to do it. And so what I need is your presence, Christ. And I will live in this way as your presence in these moments. And the manifest presence of God is Christians. It's the church in action in the world. It was present last week on the lawn when we had our outdoor service. And the world can look and see the manifest presence of Christ. The body of Christ gathered. Now oftentimes the manifest presence of God can tell the wrong story about God. When Christians get together and do terrible things in the name of other lords, polit political movements, conspiracy theories, all kinds of stuff, the, the church can, can manifest a presence of God that is a lie, that is not true, but that is not what we are supposed to do. The way to solve this is to ponder Jesus. And every manifestation that you have as a church should only be a description and a picture of Jesus. These are the things that you do, and the world looks at you, and they can see what God is like. We can believe that God is present, but they cannot see that. You cannot see that. The way the world is going to see it by you is by you stepping up and saying, I'm going to man now manifest the presence of Jesus. This is what the church is called to do. This is one of our main goals. God alone is responsible for his omnipresence, and you and I, church, are responsible, fully responsible for the manifest presence of, of, of Christ. Jesus was the manifest presence of Christ for 34 years. He showed us how to do it, and then he passed it on to us, and it is now our time.
The church is the manifest presence, revealing the unseen presence of God wherever we are. Wherever we are, God, the people don't know. If you're at Disney World, people don't think that like God is there with them, but God can be. When you begin to be the manifest presence of God, suddenly God is there in the midst of tragedy and trial and pain and, 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 and celebration, and God is present in that because you bring God into these moments. We walk into a space and we say, this is what God is doing here, and then we act it out. This is the manifest presence. We love, we encourage, we forgive, we reconcile. We make spaces even again. This is what God has called us to do. So this is the reason that we gather a lot of Christians, a lot of people who are not Christians, who are not in the church, also look at us and, and they don't understand why Christians do this. You have an entire Sunday off. Like you could sleep in and watch the millionth season of House Hunters International and never actually move anywhere, but, but imagine what it would be like over and over. Every Sunday, and you could live this way, drinking coffee in bed and eating bagels and watching. I'm telling you what I like to do. Um, I could be doing, but here we are, gathered. Why are we doing this? Why do Christians come together? Like, you've heard the story. You have a copy of the book. You could just read it. Like, why do we need to do this? Why do we gather together? This question is asked in the Bible over and over again. The apostles are writing to the people and saying, please gather together. Gather together. There's a reason for it. One of these instances is like, is in, is in, uh, Second Peter, where Peter, um, writes and says, I will remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth. You know, uh, you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. He says, he says I'm going to write to you again and again and again. And I wish we had more of these letters. I'm sure he wrote them. Uh, and he writes and he says, I'm going to, every time you gather, you're going to tell the story. Every time you get together, you're going to take communion. You're going to wash each other's feet. Um, you're going to baptize each other and you're going to tell the story of Jesus. You're going to spread the table and the rich and the poor, men and women, Jew, Gentile, Greek, Scythian, barbarian, all of you gathered together at the table and you're going to tell the story and you're going to look at each other as equals and recognize that Jesus is at the table with you and this is what you're going to do. And the reason you're going to do this, he uses this word, I, he uses this word in Greek, it's, it's um, hupomnesis. I think I have it up here. Yes. Everyone say hupomnesis. That was decent. All right. So hupomnesis, this word hupo means under. Nesis is, is knowledge. It's under knowledge. You put these things together. It's reaching underneath and grabbing that thing which has been buried and bringing it to the top and putting it on the top again. Because Constantines rise up, don't they? Like they rise up and they decide, you know what Christianity is going to do for us. It's going to do this thing. It's going to do this thing over here. And it's going to be really good. And we're all going to benefit from this type of Christianity. Um, but when you tell the stories of the apostles, they didn't seem to benefit from their Christianity except for the fact that they had life and joy and purpose. And these people over here are getting money and power and manipulating others and gathering large crowds. Yeah, and starting industries and all that. But that is not what the church is for. There will always be people who will be stacking things on top of the church. And Peter says... I'm going to write to you and you're going to gather regularly to remind yourself that things are getting buried and you need to reach under and you need to pull them back up and put them back on the top and blow the dust off and don't forget what the thing is. All other things go under that thing. And so you reach that back and you put it back on the top again and you say, remind yourselves of the gospel. Remind yourself who is king because you are adding things to it regularly, day by day, constantly. It's the idea that you learn something and you hear it and you set it in your mind because it's an important thing and you try to live it out. But over time, even over the span of a week between our gatherings, like you hear things about yourself and you believe the news and it either makes you prideful or it makes you uh, self-conscious and miserable. Um, and you hear about your like 
moral performance and it's not good, or you hear about your unattractiveness, or you hear about all the ways in which you are failing, or you hear about all the ways in which you're succeeded and how amazing and great you are, and you believe that, and you become puffed up and prideful. And what happens is the truth about who you are gets buried under life. And so we gather together as much as we can, and we pull these things out, and we dust them off, and we put them back on the top and say, no, this is it. This is the center of the whole thing. This is what I live by. All these people are saying the church is all these things and that the church can do all these things. This is what the church is. The church is the people who gather together to live out the story, to manifest the presence of Jesus in the world. This is our goal. And so I, I, I beat myself up for failing at all these other things that the church is supposed to be really good at. And I can beat myself up for those things. Or I can, I can realize that like that's, that's a side thing, a benefit of being a Christian. Like The main thing is this thing, and I'm going to try hard in these things, but, but I understand that I'm, I'm in God's family. And I'm accepted and loved exactly the way I am and where I am. Um, I, live in a, I live in an old house. A lot of you, if you live around here, you live in an old house. My house is 1914. Um, and we renovated it like three years ago. We ripped out all kinds of stuff. And we would find interesting things that kind of tell you about the story of the house. Things that had been buried and things that like, you never knew or had been forgotten by previous owners. I think we're the third owner of, owner of our house. So people have lived there a long time. Um, and so we would find Prohibition era liquor bottles. Under floorboards, of course. I know, I know a lot of people who live in this neighborhood who found the same thing. Our last house, we found an, there's an entire fallout shelter underneath the garage. Um, uh, and so, like, we find things. I found, uh, we ripped out the kitchen, the original 1914 kitchen, and there was a roll of tickets to a county fair. And the address on the roll of tickets was, it was at the corner of Columbus and Dale Mabry. And it was, I think it was back in the 40s, um, I've Googled this and I found some information that says the name of it and what it was called and it lines up with what's on the ticket. On the front of the ticket it has, it's revealing about the time that the people who lived in the house, uh, about the time in which they lived. On the front of the ticket is hours for white people. On the back of the ticket is hours for black people. And it reminds you that like, this wasn't far away. This was recently. Uh, and we forget these things. And we need to be reminded so that we don't continue to bury that anymore and so that we can stay aware of it. Like these are all the reasons why we read history books. These are all the reasons why we tell stories of the past. And these are all the reasons that we gather as a church to remind each other what has been, what is possible, what Jesus is doing, and what is the center of the whole thing. Oftentimes what we need is not new information but it is to be reminded of what we once knew but have now forgotten. The word hupomnesis is actually now used in a medical profession today to talk about a weakened memory of the past. And the transverse of this word hupomnesis is this other word, um, anamnesis. It's the same word that Jesus used in Luke 22 where he says, it says, and he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Jesus himself is taking part in the remembrance. He says, Whenever there is division, remember my body, and, my body and blood was broken and poured out for you. Whenever there is strife, whenever there is a forgetting of our, of our purpose, whenever there, is, um, whenever there is a call for someone to pay for the wrong that has been done and we want to punish and we want to use coercion and violence, Jesus says, no, 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 remember, my body was broken for you and them. My, my blood was poured out for you and them. And do this regularly to remember. So if you... If you uh, are sort of new to Watermark, we, 
Traditionally, we take communion every single week. It is the great unifier in a room full of people who have different opinions and different sort of le- theological leanings. We, we've always tried to be a diverse community that, that, that comes together at the table of communion to say this is the great unifier. If you set communion uh, in the midst of, of Presbyterians and Methodists and Southern Baptists, they will all come to the table to take it. And when it's over, they're probably going to exchange some, uh, you know, some, some dialogue and like disagree about some different things. And you know what, like... That's fine. Take communion, though. Like, that's, that's the great unifier. This is what Jesus says. Like, this is, the, the, this is what binds us together and helps us remember. So we don't take communion these days because apparently there's a pandemic. Um, but one of the reasons that we gather here is to take communion regularly, both here and together throughout the week. It's because our day is filled with so much incoming information. And we have to be reminded of the center of the whole thing. The body of Christ was broken for you. No matter what story people are telling you about yourself, no matter what story you are telling yourself about yourself. Remember the body of Christ has been broken for you. The blood of Christ poured out for you. This family stitched together as a gift to you. Embrace it and lean into it. And all the messages and the thoughts that lead, that that tend to, to bury the things that we have known about the gospel, this is why we gather. We must, we must find a way, once again, to move from a belief system to a manifestation of God's presence in our world again. And I think that's going to be our focus um, as we work on making ourselves uh, whole again and bringing everybody back over the next few months. So I'm glad you guys could be here with us today. I'm glad everybody online uh, can gather and, and stay with us today. If you guys want to stand, we're going to close out with a, a call-like prayer written by our prayer team. We're doing this now currently in, in lieu of communion. And we may keep it going once communion uh, is back. Who knows? So say this nice and loud with me. Here we go. Faithful God, who is present with us. Teach us to live as you intended, fulfilling our purpose, loving others as you have loved us, being a people set apart by your covenants through the holy name of Jesus. Thank you all. Let's pray. Father, be with us as we move out into, uh, into this world. I pray that you would go with us, that you go before us and prepare the way. Help us to manifest your presence in that place so that people will know that God is there. I pray that we would recognize it as well. Thank you. In your name, amen. Grace and peace, everyone. Have the greatest Sunday of your life. Go get vaccinated.